Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel, broadcasting remotely. There's been a record number of unemployment claims filed over the last month, more than 350,000. Coming up, we hear from Daryl Dudzinski, a deputy commissioner at the State Department of Labor. Now, what's been your experience filing for unemployment? We want to hear from you. That's coming up. First, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont joins us. Do you have a question for Governor Lamont? Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Governor Lamont, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Uh, I want to start off. Uh, Sunday evening, New York Times reporter Neil Vigdor tweeted that Vice President Pence said New York and Connecticut are past the peak for COVID-19. Is that accurate, Governor? Are we starting to flatten the curve? We're starting to flatten the curve. Uh, for the first time, we have two days. Two days is not a trend make, Lucy, but two days of reduced hospitalization. And uh, that is a real positive. It speaks to our hospitals, speaks to the capacity in our hospitals. But even, um, you know, Vice President Pence and his COVID commission says, um, wait 30 days and see whether this trend holds before you think about uh, seriously loosening any of your restrictions. Does that complicate things when Vice President Pence says that New York and Connecticut are past the peak? But again, we need to, again, you as you mentioned, wait for the next 30 days to see how this trend continues. Look, it's accurate, but I don't want to send the wrong message. If you're suggesting when he says that people are going to go, um, oh, we're, we're out of the woods, everything is fine, happy days are here again, that would be um, the absolute wrong message. Look what's happened in Singapore. Uh, they did they relaxed their uh, strictures, and uh, they've got a 20% surge in the last few days over there in COVID infection. So we've got to be careful a while longer. We've heard from health experts, uh, the New York Times also reporting over the weekend that the U.S. can't reopen safely until it triples the amount of COVID testing uh, that's happening. So when we look at what the testing that's been growing across our state, Governor Lamont, tell us how Connecticut can get to that number. I understand there's at least one rapid test facility open in New Haven. That is true. I was there on um Saturday, and uh, that's CVS and Abbott Labs. They're going to be up to about a thousand a day, probably by today. Uh, these are folks who self-diagnosed. They uh, responded to CVS.com uh, site, and uh, people were lined up. They got an appointment, and uh, there were some nice smiles when the vast majority found out that uh, they were not infected. But overall, I think about fifteen percent of did find that they were infected, and that is troubling. When you mentioned this rapid test facility that opened, uh, how many more can Connecticut get up and running, uh, again, to triple the amount of testing that's happening in our state, Governor? Well, we're, we're tripling the number of tests with uh, Jackson Labs at UConn and Yale New Haven. But you're right, uh, getting these Abbott Lab fast response tests are invaluable. And I was talking to uh, Larry Burlow, the head of CBS, just a couple of days ago. And they urged them two things. One, um, uh, since the um, 
virus is, is uh, accelerating still in the greater Hartford area, let's get a rapid test in Hartford, maybe in the north end, make sure that people uh, have some security there, know what's going on, and see if we can get a mobile test facility. You know, as you know, Lucy, in our nursing homes, um, we tested, but we often took three or four days for that um, result to come back. And in three or four days, another 100 people could get infected. So we need rapid real-time mobile testing in our nursing homes now. When you talk about uh, another rapid test facility, possibly in the north end of Hartford, again, this mobile testing uh, that you mentioned, how quickly could that be happening, Governor? Are you in talks where that could be seen uh, in the next few days or the next week or so? Uh, certainly not in the next few days. And um, we were fortunate, given a good relationship with CBS, that one of the, one of the very first states to get um, at least one um, rapid testing. And uh, there's, you know, 49 other governors on a CBS's telephone line there, but I, I feel very confident that we will get one soon, but I can't put a date on that. You can join our conversation with Governor Ned Lamont at the number 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. Uh, Chris is calling from Stanford. Chris, what's your question? Yeah, hello, Governor. Um, thanks for taking the call. Um, I'm a small business owner in Stanford, and um, this has just devastated my life. Um, and, um, I understand, you know, we have a major health crisis. Um, you know, can we, do you think we, I mean, when do you think we can, you know, start opening some of these small businesses up maybe, maybe in a sort of a graduated manner, but I'm just very concerned about the economic impact of this. Thank you, Chris. Chris, uh, I come out of small business as well. Um, I'd say two things to a certain degree, it depends on the small business. Unlike a lot of our other States, um, we kept uh, manufacturing going. We kept uh, big uh, public uh, construction going. Uh, when it comes to um, smaller businesses, I think it will be directly impacted by how likely it is that people can social distance there or not. And that even in places where it's tougher to social distance, we'll get them open um, as soon as we get a little more testing and face masks so we can protect people. That's, uh, say, a nail salon or a barbershop. Uh, it's a good transition to what you've announced over the last few days, this reopen Connecticut advisory group. So, Governor, when you're looking at, at benchmarks for people like Chris and others who are really struggling, they want to see uh, the economy open up again. But we've got to first tackle uh, COVID-19 and lessening uh, this virus's impact on our communities. Uh, tell us what some of those benchmarks are, because, again, people want to hear some timelines here. They're getting pretty anxious. Yeah, Lucy, um, three things. One, I would say uh, continue bending the curve on hospitalizations. Hospitalization, to me, is sort of a proxy for um, infections uh, throughout the greater community. Obviously, number two is testing, even antibody testing. If we can do that and find the people have um, developed a bit of an immunity to COVID, they'd be more likely to go back. Younger people would be more likely to go back since they're less likely to suffer infections. And the third one is uh, upping our supply of um, protective masks and gloves. We have plenty of gloves. Um, in terms of protective masks, we have enough for our hospital workers. Um, uh, most of our frontline responders were just keeping up at the nursing homes. But to make that more broadly available so your uh, barber nail salon would also be able to treat you in close quarters but safely um, is probably still a little bit away. But we're right on the front line. Of, I just believe we're 
supply and demand on PPE, the protective gear, is getting closer. And we feel pretty confident the next couple of weeks we'll have a lot more supply. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677 with Governor Lamont. Uh, Josh is calling from Hartford. Josh, what's your question? Uh, good morning, Lucy and Governor Lamont. I'm a city councilman in Hartford, and a concern that I'm hearing from a lot of my constituents is about rent. I know the governor took some really useful steps to postpone rent for the next couple months uh, and to let people use their security deposits for rent to a certain degree. But that doesn't really solve the problem so much as it pushes it down the road. And it puts us in a situation where a lot of people who aren't working for months and months are going to face a big bill when the pandemic ends. So my question is, what further steps is the governor taking and is he considering just canceling rent along with a postponement of mortgage payments for owners? Um, no, that's a good question. There's, there's only so much we can do um, at, at the state level. Uh, for the feds, uh, we're working with Senators Murphy and Blumenthal to see if we can turn that rent grace period into a grant or forgiveness. Same like the last question when it came to small business. Uh, when it came to small business, that we wanted to make sure that was not a loan that had to be paid back, but that was a forgivable loan. And I understand exactly what you're saying, that when people have no income coming in, having a balloon payment at the end of a loan forgiveness uh, doesn't help much. So we are aware of that and doing what we can. You know, knowing that landlords, um, they have some forgiveness, they have some grace period on their mortgage payments as well. Uh, again, you can join us with Governor Lamont, 888-720-WMPR. Uh, that's 888-720-9677. Uh, Governor Lamont, you mentioned uh, nursing homes earlier. I wanted to go back to that. Again, we're hearing that uh, the rate of infection in nursing homes has really grown. Uh, 40% of state COVID deaths were nursing home residents. I know over the weekend you announced that uh, these Connecticut nursing home operators will be getting a boost in Medicaid payments, uh, but we're hearing from frontline staff at these nursing homes worried about the high rate of infection, that they're not only not able to get appropriate PPE, but but the, when we think about who gets priority testing, they're not eligible for that. Is that something you can change? In my mind, they are first responders, and uh, just like um, the CBS drive through test we were mentioning uh, earlier, uh, with the first hundred tests every day are reserved for first responders. So, let me look into that, Lucy, but, um, you know, I believe uh, we should make sure that that happens. These are folks putting their lives on the line, front line every day. We also heard from some residents who, unfortunately, have lost loved ones, uh, Governor Lamont, uh, elderly uh, loved ones in nursing homes. Uh, we're hearing, again, over the weekend that you're having now the Connecticut Department of Public Health uh, do more uh, inspections of these nursing homes. But when we think about uh, the great toll it has taken on the elderly population, was the state too slow to respond to this particular population in dealing with the spread of COVID? Oh, my God, I think we all were. I mean, Connecticut, as you point out, probably 40%, almost 40% of our fatalities were related to nursing homes. Massachusetts is 50%. Rhode Island, I recently read, is about 75%. Uh, it's incredibly dangerous. Um, we were one of the very first to say um, no outside visitors to nursing homes just because of the nature of bringing um, the potential infection into a nursing home like that. I think that helped us, uh, you know, in the near term anyway. 
Uh, and we, you're right, we are inspecting these nerds. These are mainly private companies, so it's not like we can simply dictate. But uh, they are regulated by us, so we are going through making sure they have the right sanitary disinfectant, the right notification for people in terms of infection. As you know, we've got um, some outside facilities now to get um, infected patients out of the nursing home, in the ICU perhaps, and then they are uh, able to recover in a COVID-only nursing home, which is previously unoccupied. When we talk about those COVID recovery centers, uh, two have opened, there's two more that are coming down the line. But in terms of, again, trying to prevent this infection from spreading at nursing homes, uh, what more can be done? Because, again, this nursing home population, like the prison population, like people in psychiatric facilities, it's hard to socially distance. Um, It's very hard. Um, And sadly, you know, they are trying to do that. Um, uh, they tend to have their meals alone in their room, um, and uh, you know, that's tragic. So um, don't go visit your grandparent, but at least call your grandparent. Stay in close contact because that is uh, just so uh, depressing. Uh, the most important thing I'm trying to do, and that's what I talked to CBS about, is get that mobile testing facility over there so I can get real-time tests and then um, be able to figure out who's infected and get them to the right um a level of quarantine or uh, hospitalization much faster and get them out of uh, the common. But there's a lot less commingling at the nursing homes today than there was two months ago. Uh, Kathy, on Twitter, as a follow-up to my question about uh, social distancing, she wants to know uh, what the state's doing to prevent COVID-19 infections within state-operated facilities for people with psychiatric or intellectual and developmental disabilities. Yeah, that's... um, a lot of state workers, Lucy, are frontline workers. These are essential workers. And if you um, you provide a psychological counseling or um, support for folks with uh, physical disabilities, you can't do all of that by phone. So, uh, A, we're getting those folks, make sure that they have the uh, protective gear they need. They absolutely have to be there in person. Uh, we've uh, created a hotline called Talk It Out. Talk It Out. 211. Talk It Out. Just for the thousands of people that um, are, things are building up just given the stress. And uh, we have uh, counselors, we have not-for-profits, we have doctors, you know, um, you know, making sure that you get a friendly voice on the other side of the phone call. And um, not to go on, but we're also doing a lot of um, the telelearning, as you know, and online scholastic and teachers calling in, providing classes. So this is not lost educationally for our, our students. But increasingly, they're doing more counseling um, online as well or by telephone just because people need somebody to talk to. And we're taking that very seriously. Governor Lamont, just a quick follow up. Uh, When we're talking about state operated psychiatric facilities, uh, what is your administration doing to look at uh, the patients to see who may be discharged uh, so that they're not at risk of getting COVID-19 as also thinking about uh, discharging people that don't pose an unreasonable risk to the public? Have you had that discussion yet? Yeah, I think we have. Um, You know, I think um, uh, Miriam over at uh, uh, Demas is uh, very careful about who. This is true of psychiatric hospitals. It's true of corrections. It's true of nursing homes. It's true of homeless shelters. All those places where generally people have lived in relatively close quarters are like a petri dish. And um, uh, so we're doing everything we can to be able to make sure they can um, uh, have a safe 
secure, isolated environment there so they don't are less likely to contaminate each other. We're trying to do better and better every day in terms of rapid testing, as I described before, so we can get somebody who's been infected um, into a separate facility. You know, for the homeless, Lucy, we've got, um, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, hundreds, certainly, if not thousands of um, hotel um, beds that we've been able to stand up. So to get folks in a homeless shelter who perhaps are infected so they, in turn, could be treated in a separate capacity as well, much more safely. And you don't want to just simply release people out into the street because there, um, obviously, uh, there's a potential for a contagion. Susan's calling from Hamden. Susan, go ahead. Hi, thank you, Governor Lamont, for taking the call. Um, we all saw what happened in the Wisconsin primary, and I'm wondering what um, plans you have to ensure a vote-by-mail option, not only in the primary, but in the November election. Hey, Susan, that's a, a excellent question. Um, uh, I, first of all, we delayed the primary from April to June and now to August. Uh, and uh, I'm a strong supporter of vote by mail. Um, I, I think we should be planning for November right now. And by the way, I have a um, stay safe, stay at home um, order in place. So, it's, you know, even in August, my instinct is that for um, our much older residents, uh, I do not want them going out and voting. So I'm working with the legislature to figure out what is the best way to do a, a vote by mail. And uh, we've got to start that right now. There's a little anxiety within the legislature that vote by mail could be subject to fraud. But, um, look, they do it in, um, you know, dozens of other states, Republican states, Democratic states. It's, it's, it's an idea whose time has come, especially now. And Jane's calling from Glastonbury. Jane, we just have a couple of minutes left. Go ahead with your question. Good morning, Governor. Uh, first, I just wanted to thank you for what you've done to protect us in Connecticut. I have a question regarding Kevin Rennie's article yesterday morning in the Hartford Current, where he talks about a committee that has been organized uh, to reopen Connecticut. Uh, he says that it will not be subject to freedom of information guidelines, and I just want to address all right, uh, Jane, again, thank you for your call. Uh, Governor Lamont, again, she wants to know why this reopened Connecticut group won't be subject to FOIA laws. So what we've got is a, an advisory board, um, you know, under our um, you know, CT, um, advanced CT, uh, which is our not-for-profit independent. We've got academics and business people from across the spectrum, all, um, you know, really um, uh from a broadest base of people. we got the best people helping advise us now, right now, as we try and go through. And they, in turn, coordinate with the uh, state governments as well. So, um, And they're going to be reporting on a regular basis. I think every Thursday they're going to be part of my um, press briefing going on. And I, um, I hope that satisfies people, that they're going to give the very best advice they can in this fast-changing situation. I think it's the best advisory group I've seen in the country in terms of helping us figure out when and how we can get people back to work safely. Uh, Governor Lamont, uh, before we let you go, again, we know that you have uh, these people working, uh, thinking about how to reopen Connecticut safely. Uh, many people, including school children, are home. Uh, any expectation that school will open before June 30th? Uh, we've said that May 20th will be our uh, decision point. 
Now, um, that's because of, like I said, the testing and the masks and a lot more information than we have right now and the trends on hospitalization. So we'll probably a week or two before that May 20 date, um, Miguel Cordona will start uh, working with superintendents and um, seeing what, if anything, we can do before the uh, end of the school year. I'm not going to prejudge that. Uh, someone did ask quickly, uh, Governor, on Twitter, I'm wondering about uh, plans for opening summer camps, day and or residential, and what restrictions they should expect. Is this something that's even on your radar yet? I know there's some, um, we're beginning to think about that, and um, the uh, the Open CT group is also uh, thinking about that. Um, uh, you know, we've got a lot of young people who have been, um, you know, on the sidelines for well over a month. So that's why uh, people are thinking about schools, people think about camps, thinking about at least getting more and more um, uh, education programs going, maybe something certainly before back to school in uh, late August, September, to help some kids, you know, catch up and socialize and, uh, and learn the skills. The, the teachers are doing all this now telephonically and online, but I think there's going to be a time in July and August where people are going to need more social interaction. And I will tell you, we've got a group, uh, it's called 4CT, and that they've raised uh, millions of dollars, and they're thinking about a, um, you know, a civilian um, service corps, maybe get young people some uh, jobs and pay them a little bit to help get back in the game as uh, the summer goes on. Well, Governor Lamont, we appreciate your time here on Where We Live. Anything else that you want to add before we let you go? I know it's really tempting, and uh, spring fever is in the air, and you hear some relatively good news out there, but um, this is no time to take your eye off the ball. I I need people to um, stay safe, stay at home, maintain the discipline a little bit longer, and if we do that, uh, we're going to be so much better for the long term. So uh, hang in there with us. We're going to get this state open again and going again, but in a very thoughtful way. Governor Lamont, thank you for calling in today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Lucy. Talk to you soon. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, are you one of the more than 350,000 who filed for unemployment over the last month? What was your experience like? Do you have a question for the State Department of Labor? 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. After the break, we'll be joined by Connecticut Department of Labor Deputy Commissioner Daryl Dudzinski. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The pandemic has left millions of Americans out of work. In Connecticut, more than 350,000 unemployment claims. But the number of people who've lost their paycheck is much larger when you include people like the self-employed and gig workers. For those who are in our state eligible for unemployment insurance, the sheer number of claims caused a wait time of six weeks. Now that backlog has been remedied thanks to a computer programming upgrade. But with the pandemic shut down expected to last for an unknown number of weeks? How will the State Department of Labor be able to meet future claim demands? Joining us on the phone now is Connecticut Department of Labor Deputy Commissioner Daryl Dudzinski. Uh, Commissioner, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. I mentioned uh, an upgrade to the computer program the Department of Labor uses. That 
cause the backlog, according to uh, the governor and your department. So tell us a little bit about when we look back at the recession of 2008, uh, just how much there was a change in terms of the amount of claims being filed. Sure. Um, During the Great Recession, there was an increase uh, through each month um, for unemployment claims. And so it was gradually growing. And we had a a call center environment with about 130 staff members handling the phones. And it was open, typical call center hours, Monday through Friday, um, 7 to 4.30. And if you couldn't get through, you weren't able to actually submit an application. And that became a serious problem, even with 130 staff members working, uh, with which went to overtime and Saturdays and holidays, and still we had customers waiting weeks to file and submit their unemployment claim, and that was a serious problem. Um, we were able to come out of that great recession, and unfortunately we um, we hit what we called a, a fiscal crisis, and we had to downsize our staffing. Um, so in the claim intake, it went from 130 uh, employees to approximately 40, and we were no longer able to sustain a call center environment, and that was in 2015. And realizing that and preparing for what we were going to be implementing in a a new unemployment insurance system um, with consortium states, preparing for that as well, we designed an internet application and implemented that in the summer of 2016. Um, so with, with the reduction of staff and a new online application, our customers were using the online application much, much more, uh, more than we expected, which was great. And knowing that the call center environment, which is very expensive to maintain, um, was was in, in desperate need of uh, millions of dollars in support to get uh, to keep and maintain a call center environment along with the staff that just wasn't there. The the internet um, application continued to be used and and, and was growing um, in leaps and bounds as far as activity. And that was the direction the agency needed to go in because, again, we could not support a call center environment. Um, the great thing about the online application is it, it doesn't close. It's open 24-7, 365. Um, and it has great communication back and forth between the customer through emails. Um, so around uh, December of 2016 and in May of 2017, there was further enhancements to the application to make it even more uh, accessible, um, along with uh, assisting the staff in the process. Now, that's that's the front end of, of the unemployment system. There's four others that ultimately work with the mainframe, which is really the problem um, in processing unemployment insurance claims. It's just not a nimble system. Um, it's, it's a cobalt language, and it makes it more difficult. But for the customer, at a minimum, they have the online application. Um, and before the pandemic, what the agency did was put UI, unemployment insurance experts, in each of the American job centers to help support the in-person service to a customer, and our customers really enjoyed that. They really liked the in-person service. And it also um, was providing them an an opportunity to 
understand what an American job center is throughout Connecticut, and it uh, would allow Commissioner, them to Commissioner Dudzinski, yeah. um, because these uh, centers can't be open right now because of the pandemic, in terms right. of, again, answering people's questions, are, is there any uh, movement to hire more workers to help uh, have uh, calls, call-in support? So we did, um, because of the, the closure of the American job centers, we did create two phone lines on the way, um, that is, is being answered by our Department of Labor representatives to help and to assist. Um, and we have those listed on our website as well. Um, there's, we're not going to be able to stand up a call center environment. It, 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 would, it would take very, a very long time. It would take months uh, to do that and also to be able to staff where they would be able to respond to an unemployment insurance question or to resolve an issue. Uh, but we do have two phone numbers to provide assistance and to gather information. We also created um, online assistance through WebHelp um, and, and what's called an online assistance center for direct UI questions, such as if they missed a week of unemployment, they can, they can submit their uh, claim that way as well. One of the reasons we wanted to have you on, uh, Commissioner Dudzinski, is to allow our listeners to ask some questions, um, some of the issues they've run into trying to file for unemployment. Uh, Michelle's calling from Lebanon. Uh, Michelle, go ahead. Hi, this is Michelle from Lebanon. Um, I was laid off um, mid-March. I filed, and now I'm like, I have not received any payment. I can't get through on any phone lines. I've left emails. They are not being... um, uh, responded to, and I had a message on my claim inquiry today and last week as well that my account, my claim is on hold due to potential issues. I don't know what issue that would be. I don't know how to find out. I can't make contact, and meanwhile, I'm not having any income. I'm getting very concerned and, uh, you know, worried. What can I do? Who can help me? Thank you, Michelle. Commissioner Dudzinski. So, um, that's I mean, this is just very unfortunate. This is something that we we definitely strive to avoid, and we don't want anyone to be misinformed. There are several reasons a claim could be on on hold. There could be an uh, inappropriate answer. There could be um, a hearing that is necessary uh, scheduled. So, it, you know, it's always case by case. Um, and, and again, this is unfortunate. If you've called uh, the information center. Um, they may be able to provide you some other guidance. And it sounds like you submitted a web um, response um, asking for an update, and we would be replying to that in, in the order we get them. Um, we're trying our best to answer. I think we have uh, about 18,000 emails. Um, and, and as we address the backlog and prepare for the federal claims, we're just trying to handle all these different responsibilities, and it's just it is unfortunate. But for you specifically, Michelle, um, I would try to call um, our number um, and, and see if you can get assistance there. It's eight six zero two six three six nine seven five or two zero three four five five two six five three. And again, we also have the web help, um, and that email can be submitted through dol.webhelp at ct.gov. Uh, Commissioner Dudzinski, we know that the, the state benefit, if a, a claim is approved, is $600 per week. But what's coming on uh, later this week from the federal government? Could these uh, checks now be doubled be th- through that federal uh, aid that's going to be added on? 
Um, state unemployment insurance can range of a weekly payment between $15 and $649. Okay. And that's, um, that's been consistent for since October. The additional $600 that you're referencing is under the CARES Act, a federal program. We're developing the software to create that additional $600 on top of the state benefits. So in addition to, and that would be effective retro to any payments uh, made from March 29 on through July 25th. We're anticipating um, that program, that software to be implemented by the end of um, this week and be payable um, on April 27th. That is our goal and and what we're striving to do. So it would be um, if you're, if you're eligible for $649, the maximum unemployment, benefits from the state, and it would be an additional 600 so it would be a, tw- a total of 1249 per week. And again, it would be retro, and we'll be making those payments as well. Again, you can join our conversation with the Deputy Commissioner of the Department of Labor in the state of Connecticut, that's Daryl Dudzinski, the number 888-720-9677. Gene's calling from Hartford. Gene, what's your question? Yes, I have a couple questions, actually. Uh, <clears throat> The software, is it completed for freelancers? Uh, I understand they're building a new software for a new category for freelancers like uh, production people in the video business. Yes, the you know, self-employed independent contractors um, under the, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, uh, PUA, under the CARES Act, that is a brand new unemployment insurance uh, system, and we're we're, we've been working towards that with our vendor, um, and we'll be, we anticipate standing that up, implementing that at the end of this month. And again, that particular program uh, will be accepting applications for the self-employed, um, as you, you indicated, freelance, and um, we'll be working through the process on how that application will look like and, and the payments, if eligible, go back um, retro to effective February 2nd. Um, so there's there's a lot of weeks there. If you were under or unemployed, um, it will go back to February 2nd. And Gene, what's your other question? The other question was, I previously was on uh, unemployment benefits that expired in January for a, uh, a teaching position, and uh, there, there was no extension. But now would I still be eligible to get an extension from that uh, last year's um, unemployment benefits? So each um, each unemployment claim is case by case. So if you receive state unemployment um, and you receive 26 weeks of benefits within a year, you would be have exhausted the state benefits. Your that particular scenario, the eligibility for the pandemic unemployment assistance uh, could be in play for you, um, effective February 2nd. Um, and then what would happen is there's another federal extension for the the pandemic uh, extended unemployment compensation, and that is an additional 13 weeks once um, someone exhausts the state 26 weeks. And the PEUC, the pandemic extended unemployment compensation, is effective March 29. So. Your specific example, if you exhausted 26 weeks of state benefits in January, potentially you could be eligible for the PUA um, uh, effective February 2nd 
through March 28th, and then you would be applying for the the 13-week the pandemic extended unemployment compensation effective March 29. Each of those programs, state, PUA, which is the freelance or self-employed, et cetera, um, and also the 13-week federal extension, all of those programs would include the $600 plus up um, for any payments made effective March 29 through July 25. Uh, Commissioner Dudzinski, I have to admit my head is swimming from all of the acronyms and different deadlines and amount of money that people can get. Where is there is there a place on your website that's very clear in like FAQs for people so they can understand what they're eligible for? Yes, um, that's that is um, one important concept on our website. We do have um, Q&As, we have tutorials, and there's videos, there's a YouTube, um, and it's getting a lot of action, which is great. There's a lot of information on our website. There's even information um, that talks about if, if the company received their um, uh, payroll protection uh, program, the loan, and they're repaying or paying the employees for their work. Um, even retro, it explains how the employee would report that to us so we could stop their unemployment, et cetera. So there's a lot of great information about the, the CARES Act federal programs, when it's effective, when it ends, um, and, and what what's the duration, et cetera. So a lot of great information that's on our website at ctdol.state.ct.us. Uh, before we head to break, uh, Commissioner Dudzinski, I, I'm, I'm curious about uh, the the financial resources uh, to pay not only Connecticut residents, but other Americans out of work. Uh, is Connecticut in danger of running out of funds? On our, our state benefits, the 26 weeks of state eligibility, um, our trust fund that is uh, supported by the employers in the state of Connecticut is not solvent, and we will... We anticipate um, um, running out of money, uh, so to speak, but we have already prepared to borrow um, from the federal government. So um, that has already been teed up. So if we, when, when the trust fund becomes low as far as what it pays out on the state benefits, the 26 weeks, we will be borrowing, borrowing from the federal government to make sure that there is no delay in anyone's monies. Uh, the federal programs, the $600 plus up, um, the self-employed, so to speak, uh, pandemic unemployment assistance, and the 13-week federal extension, those are all 100% federally funded, and we're preparing to draw down those monies as we begin to pay those uh, unemployment insurance programs. At this point in time, do you know how much longer the state funds are solvent? Um, It's going to, we anticipated around June of this year is when we would be borrowing. Um, but as we have been paying out um, a lot of unemployment uh, payments, they've been growing by the by about 50,000 um, 50, or more um, um, each week. So, for example, week ending April 4th, we, we issued 103,000 payments. Um, April, week ending April 11th, 158,000 uh, payments. And then as of um, last week, week ending April 18th, 253,000 payments, um, and that was $83 million just for last week. So at the rate we're going, 
it's going to be before June, and we'll be analyzing that very closely. And we would anticipate um, early May is when we'll be looking at, so in a couple weeks. You're hearing Connecticut Department of Labor Deputy Commissioner Daryl Dudzinski here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. If you've got a question about filing for unemployment, maybe something you've run into as you tried to file, you can call us 888-720-WNPR. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, with us by phone is Connecticut Department of Labor Deputy Commissioner Daryl Dudzinski to help answer some of your questions about unemployment. Uh, Pam's calling from Middlefield. Pam, what's your question? Hi, good morning. Um, my uh, daughter's boyfriend was laid off early on in the pandemic, prior to the end of March. He received his unemployment when he applied the site said, if you do not have a return to work date, just put in April 1st. So he put in April 1st. So last week, no money came into his account. And when he checked his records, there was a 35 code, which meant he had gone past his return to work date. There was no one to answer the phone. In fact, the number they called would hang up on them. They found no way to email. He couldn't modify his application. So then he thought, well, maybe he could do a new application. When he tried to do that, he got closed out of the system. So this poor guy has a couple of weeks of unemployment, will miss the extra 600 because it seems impossible for him to get in touch with anyone or to renew an application. I expect my daughter, who happened to work for the same country club, put in a, a slightly later date, but I expect it might happen to her and it may happen to a lot of people. So I wonder how the Department of Labor is going to take care of that issue. Thank you, Pam, for your call. Um, yeah, so we have been communicating with all of our customers by email. Um, so basically what happened at the very beginning as we were trying to stabilize all of our systems from um, the maximum thresholds and, and whatnot, we realized that the best way for someone to actually file and to get automated payments was to use what's called a temporary shutdown program. And we created a tutorial to walk the customer through on what the questions would look like, um, what answers they want to provide, et cetera. And at the very beginning of the pandemic, no one knew how long it was going to last. So we were, if the employer wasn't providing a return to work date, we were suggesting a return to work date, um, such as April 1 or April 15th, et cetera. Um, and what we've done is we were able to expedite the claim and get those processed for the ones that did follow that instruction and tutorial. And then what would happen is they'd get another email and it would say, You're no, we, we did remove your return to work date because it's unrealistic um, based on the pandemic. And you would be filing your own weekly claims going forward. What we're finding is a lot of our customers are getting some of our emails, but other emails are going to spam or their, their junk drive and they're not able to read them or they're not paying attention to them. So emails did go out. If someone did not read the email or understand um, to, that they had action, that they had to process their own weekly claims, and then it was too late because they missed a week, um, so to speak, 
they can go into our um, internet system where it has filed for unemployment benefits, where they actually were filing their initial claim um, or their weekly claims or how they signed up for direct deposit. On that same page in the website, uh, um, below it, there's a section called Quick Click, and the first bullet is Miss Filing Weekly Claim. And all you need to do is click on that and uh, certify who you are, put in the information in there, and then you'll be answering the questions about the previous weeks. And we will process your weekly claims, get you caught up, and get you paid if you're in a payable status. Um, and then you would resume your own weekly claims. And so you're always filing for the previous week beginning on Sunday, but you also have Monday through Friday as well. Um, and, and, and that's how the customers who are, are we believe a lot of the emails might be going to their spam. They're not allowing it to go to their regular emails. And that's how you would resolve that issue. And it sounds like they already used our system. They, they're familiar with it. So this would be um, hopefully a very easy transaction for them. And then we'll get to their claim, uh, their weekly claims, and again, get them caught up and paid, and then they can go um, and continue to file. Any payment that we make um, will include the $600 plus up effective for payments March 29. So if if that person is missing a week or two because they didn't re- they didn't read or receive the email correctly um, about their ability to file their own weekly claims going forward, um, you do the quick clicks, missed a week, we'll get you caught up, okay. and then when we run the programs to pay the additional 600, to be built, everyone would be made whole. Commissioner, I wanted to fit in another call, uh, call. Charles from Stanford, you're on Where We Live. Quickly, your question? Yes, yeah, so my question is, I'm a uh, home improvement contractor, and I have to file estimated quarterlies. And my question is, this year I understand that my April 15th quarterly will be delayed until, I believe, July, when I have to make another quarterly payment. But the real issue is quarterly estimates are based on what you did the prior year, which last year I had a fantastic year, and you have to come within 90% of your estimated quarterly of last year. And my problem is that this year, I probably won't make what I made for all my estimated quarterlies for last year. And I was wondering if the local or the state and federal government's going to do anything about that to um, kind of alleviate that kind of problem. And just let Thank it- you, Charles. Uh, we've just got a couple of minutes. Uh, Commissioner Dazinski, uh, any answer for him? So it, I, if you're referencing uh, the ability for a home improvement or self-employed to file under the pandemic unemployment assistance and how that would be calculated for their rate, we'll be using right now, based on the federal guidance, we're going to be using the 2019 uh, tax year and um, analyzing the net profit profit from the self-employed to determine what their payment would be if they are eligible um, for the pandemic unemployment assistance. Again, retro to uh, February 2nd, if they were impacted by COVID-19 related reasons. And it's all defined by the CARES Act under the federal government. So we have to understand if the person has um, lost employment, underemployed or unemployed, effective February 2nd on based on the CARES Act COVID-19 reasons for unemployment. Uh, there's a lot of questions. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, too much time left, Commissioner Dudzinski, but uh, David on Twitter did uh, write, a loophole exists that can result in adjunct faculty being denied unemployment insurance when their contracts finish. Uh, he wants to know how this loophole can be addressed. Do you have any answer to that? 
That's a um, that is a little bit of a complex mm-hmm. scenario because adjunct professors, um, if they have what's called reasonable assurance of returning to the same or better position when the academic year uh, resumes. So, if they're working now and they complete the semester in May um, and, and they're off for the summer. The question to the employer is, or the school is, will they be returning to the to the same or better um, position when school resumes in late August or September? And so we'll need more information from the employer to be able to provide that information. If the school is not providing the reasonable assurance to the adjunct professor, then the unemployment during the summer could be paid out including the calculation of of their unemployment rate using the educational wages that's the crux of the, of the law is can we can we or can we not use the educational wages during the academic recess and and the reason behind that on their law is do they have reasonable assurance of returning to the same or better position when when the academic year resumes and and so we would need information from the employer to make that decision and i don't know that these schools have analyze what they're going to be doing when um, when school ends and when they're going to begin the new academic year, and, and again, late August, September. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to, again, thank Daryl Dodzinski. He's the Deputy Commissioner of the State Department of Labor. Uh, we appreciate your time and flexibility today. You're welcome. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our our tech producer is Kat Pastor. On the phones today, Carmen Baskoff. Um, if we weren't able to get your question on the air, uh, just email us or stand by, and we'll try to get some of your comments uh, to the commissioner offline. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>